Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Okay, so today's topic is probably one of the most cliched corporate terms of all time today, leadership. Man, when you throw the word leadership out, it's almost become so cliched because people don't really know what it means and everyone defines it differently. And if you think about the leaders in your life, why would you call them leaders? What characteristics do they possess that make what you would call a leader a leader? How about yourself? How would people determine if you're a leader? And, and this term has been you know, bandied about for, for decades, probably centuries, and what it takes to be a good leader, what a uh, bad leader looks like. And what we want to talk about today when it comes to leadership, and this is unique because we've got a really special guest. You, you might hear him on a few other episodes riding shotgun with me here, but we've got soon to be Dr. Dan Doherty, who's finishing up his PhD, and his area of expertise around leadership, specifically leadership relative to coaching and feedback. And I'm excited to have Dan on today because this is an area that is near and dear to my heart, and it's a real big passion point for him because this is really a culmination of his life's work with this PhD. And I can tell you that he's probably one of the best coaches that I've been around, and I've seen him work in action. And so having him on the show today is is a treat for for me, but it's also, I think, going to add a lot of value to you guys out there listening today. So with that, I'm going to welcome Dan. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. So, you know, before we jump into some of the topics that I want to cover with you today that will hopefully bring some value to our audience out there, uh, why don't you just give a little bit of background on your passion for leadership, why you chose, you know, leadership and coaching as, as such a very specific window for what you wanted to study when getting your PhD. Thanks, Jeff. This journey for me started well over 25 years ago. And through spending my professional career, not only in the healthcare industry, but also in the legal services space, I've just seen time and time again this disconnect between a leader, a coach, and their employees. And it's one of those concepts and ideas that a lot of people say, yeah, I think I'm a great leader, or I think I'm a great coach. But yet when they're talking about are they actually engaged with their employees, that they're able to transform their employees in some way, that makes a fundamental difference so those employees are willing to go the extra mile to do the things that they need to not only make the team successful, make themselves successful. So going back, it was about five years ago, I was sitting at my desk and January, February, and I was writing a performance review. And I stopped for a second and I thought about the tool that I was actually using as I was getting prepared to go into a conversation with one of my employees. And I thought to myself, this is one of the most disengaging tools that we have as coaches, but yet we continue to use them. And I realized that I don't like writing them. My team members don't like receiving them. And I kind of thought to myself, like a two-year-old, I wanted to know why. And But yet we continually use them year after year. And what I've come to realize over the years is that 
the employees that we're coaching and that we're leading, you can go back two, three years and ask somebody a question about a time that they had a conversation with with their leader or their manager and ask them about in, in a conversation similar to a performance evaluation. And you know what they'll tell you, Jeff? They'll say, I remember the two or three critical things that somebody told me, and they won't remember any of the positives. And that's not 100% of the time. And there are a lot of great coaches out there. But I started as I started to, to dig deeper into this concept of coaching, I realized quickly that my passion, when you, whenever you kind of strap on the armor of leadership and as a coach, is that you have to, you have to realize very quickly that that person sitting across from you, that it's no longer about you. It's about them and helping them find their passions and connect into their purpose and into their calling. And I had a passion. And I remember when I started my PhD program, I sat across from my mentor, Dr. Richard Boyatzis, and he asked me, why do you want to do this? And I said, you know what? It's really, I'm, I'm, it's really clear to me. I want to help people. I want to understand first and then help people become the absolute best coaches that they can be so that they can transform relationships and build high quality relationships to get the best outcomes possible for the individual. And that, Jeff, started this entire journey that I've been on for the past five years. That's awesome. And, and I would, I think for fun, what I want to do is because we're going to get into a bunch of, of not really necessarily scientific theories behind leadership, but we are going to get into some principles of leadership that's been studied and, and a lot of research that's been done on it even in the past couple of years. But I thought what might be a fun game to play before we jump into that is we're going to do a ping pong exercise here where I'm going to throw out a characteristic of a leader and then you're going to come up with one. And we'll just see how far we can go with what we think are characteristics of good leaders. Okay. Now, do you want to start or do you want me to start? I want you to start. You want me to start? Okay. I will say humble. Vulnerable. Ooh, that's a good one. Are you sure? That, that I'm sure. That? Yeah? Okay. Well, I guess you're going to back that up a little bit later, right? I would say visionary. Authentic. Mm. I would say perspective. I would say empathetic. Man, you're so much better at this than I am. <laughs> Um, I would say hard worker. I would say trusting. I would say driven. I would say relational. And yours are a lot more, a lot more emotionally connecting than my characteristics, aren't they? They are. I, that's in, but as a partner to yours, that doesn't surprise that's me. That's interesting, right? And, and I think um, the reason I wanted to do that was because as, as we were playing, you were probably playing along with us, and you were probably trying to think and guess what you would use to describe out there in the listening audience different characteristics of leaders. And I think sometimes we we think of people who have the megaphone as a leader. We think of someone who has the platform as a leader. And what we know to be true is that's just not the case. Um, a leader is someone who can selflessly pour themselves into a mission and bring the people along in a way that maximizes their gifts and talents and strengths and makes them feel like they're a part of the mission. They're not just a cog in the wheel and they're not just a means to an end. And if you think back to the great leaders you've had in your career, and sometimes it's a long list and other times it's a short list. You know, for me, the, the list is not that long, but the ones I have had, when you look back on it, they really demonstrated a lot of the characteristics that you gave. 
You know, they were selfless. They were humble. You know, they were empathetic. Yet, here's the key, and we'll get into this in a minute. They still held me accountable. And I think that's the key, and that's the misconception that we have out there in the marketplace today, that when someone hears the term servant leadership, in a lot of circles, many quote-unquote high-level managers will bristle at that because they think that you're all soft and fluffy and that you don't get results. And I think what we'll talk about today as we get into this is how a great leader finds the way to balance that ability to be sensitive and empathetic, vulnerable and humble, yet still hold his teams accountable to results, not for the results' sake, but for the development of his people because he cares more about them than he cares about what they can do for him. And we'll get into that um, a little bit as we go today. So can you just describe for the audience out there, do you feel like there's a difference between um, a leader and a manager? Yeah, I'll go a step further than that. I'll, I'll throw out another term as well. And for those of you that are out there, you'll hear the term leader. You'll hear the term manager. You'll hear the term coach. And what I find fascinating is that oftentimes we, we that are entrusted in getting the best out of others, we will draw this hard line to where we will, we will use terms like leader or manager very comfortably in a corporate setting. And we'll use the term coach very comfortably in some form of athletic setting. But heaven forbid we actually cross that chasm to where we can say, you know, we're going to bring coaching principles, Jeff, to tie into what you were just talking about, which is, are you truly mindful of the fact that part of your job is to draw the best in that person so that you can then coach them, thus lead them, and yes, at times manage things that, that they do. And, but we have this firewall. You look through, go back and look 10 years through literature, empirical literature on coaching. And you're going to find that coaching is a term that's used in athletic research, but it's not used as commonly in business literature. And I find that fascinating because to me, when you, when you are entrusted to lead people in order to drive to an outcome and you put yourself in that coach mindset, you can't play the game. The players play the game. In business, you'll hear terms, well, I'm the player coach. I can play the game in business. Sure you can. But the reality is that the outcome, your own self-preservation is now built on the back of that your people are wired to perform. You can't win without them. So we're in the core definitions of leaders and members and coaches. What I ask people all the time is I just forget the term. Take a big step back and ask yourself, are you in the business of helping another person both articulate and strike that balance that they know that you have their, their best interests at heart and you're helping to try to get them to fulfill their personal vision? If you can do that, I'm less about concerned about the term you use and I'm more concerned about the approach that you use. That's good. That's good. So it's quiz time for you. Can you be a good leader without being a coach? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Because again, if you look at, if you look at the terms and, you know, you said we we're going to get a little bit later into some of the, in some of the research. So we won't go too deeply into it now, but just look at the terminology that we use. You can go back to the seventies and some of the earlier research that's looked at this important exchange between a leader and their employee. And you'll hear 
all kinds of different terms used. But the reality is if you're leading people, you're also managing tasks at time, but I don't think that you can be a great leader without being a great coach. Yeah, I would, I would agree wholeheartedly. I think great leaders um, who are by nature good communicators, we'll talk about how they're great coaches, but a leader who's not a good coach, in my mind, A, is not a leader. They're an individual contributor who happens to have people who have direct reports assigned to them. That yep. doesn't make you a leader, right? I totally agree. And I tell people all the time, if you don't have the people sitting across from you, if you don't have their best interests at heart, and, and, I, and I don't know if I have the time for this, but I'll share a very short story. I went through an exercise, and this is where, Jeff, I really started to understand this concept of getting yourself out of the way so that other people can flourish. Is I was asked to go out and interview an executive, and the mission that we had was to go out and keep that executive in a positive mental framework for an hour. They had no idea what we were doing there, but we had to keep them positive for an hour. And I had a stage set of questions that I asked. I asked them what they dream about, what their vision is, what their calling is, what they're passionate about. And so as I asked these questions, and I will tell you on that particular day, that executive wasn't all that interested in opening up to me. But as we went through that conversation and that person's life and their mindset about being a leader started to unfold, here was the aha. I left after an hour. I got in my car and I thought to myself, I know that executive better than I know people that have worked with me for five or 10 years. And when I had to eat that humility pill, I realized that although I say that I coach from a mindset that it is about their best interests, what I came to realize on that day is that I am so programmed and we are so programmed and trained to think about our goals and our objectives that when we take a step back, we're really coming at it from a self-preservation mindset. And when you start to drop that barrier down, that's when you fully start to appreciate the fact that you need to understand your people and you need to understand their story and you need to understand what their objectives and goals are. Critical. Right. That's good. I was having a conversation recently with one of our CEOs of one of our clients and he's ha- he was having a little bit of pushback from some of the field because he implemented some some new accountability metrics, if you will. Uh, they'd really been the Wild West and really hadn't had a whole lot of support out in the field. And so he went straight to a set of metrics to try to define their activity level. And they, they, they bucked and he was shocked. He's like, well, I don't understand why they're, they're being so you know, defensive about all this. And I, and I said, has, has anyone in the, on the team used the term, you're suddenly turning into a micromanager? And he goes, yeah, yeah, of course they did. That's exactly the words they used. And I looked at him and I said, have you ever heard someone say that they've been micro-coached? And he looked at me and he got this kind of concerned look and then he got a big smile on his face. And he goes, I know where you're going with this. I said, you exactly know where I'm going with this. When you do things, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but when you do things the way you just described them, everybody wants to improve. Everybody wants to succeed. Everybody wants to feel like they're using their God-given talents and gifts to bring value to whatever it is they're working on. And so that's why I always tell folks, you got to lead people. You can manage processes. Uh, but you can get too you can get too in the weeds on the micromanagement side of things because that's about you, and it's about the outcome. It's not about the people. But a leader will always look at the 
the outcome as a way, if you develop your people along the way with the right skills and the right behaviors, and it's in their best interest to succeed, they'll go with you. They'll join you on the journey. So that brings us to uh, the big first term, and you started to allude to it. What, I guess, what impact does the term, and we use around here at Brain Trust, self-preservation orientation, what does that mean to you from a leader's standpoint? Yeah, so what that means to me is that, and you kind of almost have to step back and think about what's in your own mindset. And, you know, we also talk about around here is that if, if you understand what's in your mindset, you can actually have a mind shift. And what that mind shift is, is that all of a sudden you're, you're no longer thinking about your own preservation, but you're thinking about that other person's preservation. And so, by the way, so hold on, hold yeah. on. I want to write that down. That's, that's a hint to our audience. So you, what you said was, if you understand your current mindset, you're in a better position for you to have a mind shift. That's pretty good. I like that. I'm sorry. Carry on. Well, thank you. But the mind <laughs> shift. But the mind shift really is, is that. And this is what I, I would challenge any anyone that's listening to us today is that when they get in their car and they're driving into their office and they think about those eight or nine or ten people that are relying on them as a leader to help propel forward where they're going, whatever their mission is. I don't. I don't care what it is. If you're coaching a sport or directing a youth organization or running a Fortune 500 company, is that all of a sudden your, your mind shift is that you're walking in that door with the mindset that you're no longer primarily thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about them and connecting into them. And when you do that, by the way, and well, I know we'll get into this relative to my passion on feedback, but what you will find is that when they trust you and they understand that you're connected on for their preservation rather than your own, what you're going to find is they're going to run through walls and they will run through walls because you know what's striking, Jeff, is that in, to, in today's environment, and you can look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you can look at Forbes magazine that had an article a year ago, the average employee now is spending one year to four years at their employer. So why are the stakes so high in what we're talking about? Is that because people are leaving their organizations and you know what they're doing? They're leaving their managers as much as they're leading their organizations. So the days when our dads left their company after 40 or 50 years and got their Rolex, people aren't staying in companies to worry about the Rolex watch that they're going to get in 50 years. It has the company name on the backside of it. That's why the stakes are so high. The costs are high and the stakes are high. And you got to get yourself out of the way before they're going to truly believe that you have their best interests at heart. So I think that sounds really good in theory. So let me press on it so we can help our audience. So you're telling me that we're wired for self-preservation, right? That's our default biological setting. And we know that. But you're telling me that to be a good leader, I have to figure out a way to shift that mindset to where I'm others focus. But yet, sounds like that's I'm fighting my very DNA, my very biology. So how does a leader begin to start to think about how to do that? What's some of the What's some of this? And then we'll get into each of these things, you know, maybe one by one. But this is a great time to start to a little bit iterate into if I'm a leader out there listening today. Sounds great, Dr. Dan. That's awesome. Uh, I can be self-preservation and turn it into others' preservation. And the next thing you know, you're stressing out and worried about the fact that your CEO just hammered you as the VP of sales because the numbers are off again this quarter. And it spikes your cortisol and you go running for, for the hammer to figure out why people aren't making enough sales calls. <laughs> so how do you actually apply that mind shift you're talking about? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm going to almost reverse I'm going to reverse the train a little bit. And I'm going to say before you, be, before you can become 
other people focused, you have to first understand yourself. Mm. And as a leader, and one of the things that we train people on around here, whether you're a leader, whether you are a, it, it doesn't matter to us whether you're in marketing or in sales or in finance or in operations, it doesn't really matter. What is your why? Why do you do what you do rather than what you do? I'm fascinated, Jeff. I walk up to people all the time and I ask, and, and I've started to do this mainly because you drilled this into me when we first met a year ago. But what I, what, one of the things that I ask people is, why do you do what you do? And they're like, well, I, you know, I work for X, Y, or Z company and I'm in charge of a $30 million P&L and I walk in and we drive a lot. And I'm like, no, 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 that's what you do. Why do you do what you do? And when you take that big step back and you ask them why they do what they do and they understand themselves, once you understand yourself, you are in a better position then to begin to coach people because you know what's interesting is that when your team members understand your why, then you can understand their why. And when you just understand their why, and that that's not to say that to sound theoretical. And, and so when we were playing a little game earlier, you asked me a word and empathy came out of my mind, out of my mouth. The reason that word's so important is because, and I hope everyone's listening. We say oftentimes that we care about people, but the word empathy by its definition means you actually have to care about somebody, which means you've got to get yourself out of the way. That doesn't mean you don't have hard conversations. That doesn't mean at times that you, you can't transactionally coach. But where does that come from? And when you understand your own core beliefs as a leader and your why, and then you understand that in your people, you build a bond and a trust that your hope is that someday when that employee, let's just say they leave the organization, that when they ask for who was that person that made a difference in their professional journey, they're going to say your name. And it's going to come from a position that there's trust built there. There's a high quality relationship built there. And then it allows you ability to coach so much more openly. And you know what happens is in the real world, we get it in reverse. We start coaching because of what you said on the pressure of the CEO came down. And believe me, brother, I spent 15 years in private equity. I get what pressure is like every day. I get what it's like to think about trying to build for the long term and build in people. But yet we've got to hit our quarterly numbers or you run the risk of letting people go or having to make tough decisions. Not easy, but doable. It's funny how much uh, how much this aligns with all of us. You know, have had different degrees of love growing up, different family scenarios, different family settings, and I think about this in the in the family unit and how the family unit has continually gotten fractured more and more, almost with each generation, and how like, different parents parent differently. But for the most part, we parent our children in a way that's very transactional. Do as I say, you not as I do. Do it immediately without context. And then we wonder why we don't, why would we do something different in the workplace? Because that's how we parent. That's how we, that's how we live our lives. We're one of those people, if we're in a position of authority, we just expect that we can give it a list of directives and it gets executed, right? It's so hard as a leader to recognize that the way forward is actually by taking a couple steps backwards. And to your point, self-reflecting, and it takes us to our end goal faster when all of us are smarter than one of us and you can tap into that energy of your team. And it doesn't matter if you're managing one person or leading one person or leading an organization of 10,000. When they believe in your why and they recognize that your why aligns with their why, then you know they'll go through just about any amount of how and what to get to the mountaintop with you. 
And that's the stuff that I know gets both of our juices flowing because we see so much dysfunction today in organizations. And, and a lot of times it has to do not, it's not that the leader in a position is a bad person or even has bad motives. That does happen. It's because they've been so kind of beat down and they've grown up in a system that's been transactional and results oriented without truly understanding that empathetic why and in helping the entire organization take those God-given gifts and talents and then helping them foster them and develop them so they feel affirmed and fulfilled. Because at the end of the day, here's what I don't believe I've seen very often on a tombstone. Well, he was the hardest working, you know, mid-level manager we ever had at the company. It's not what you want to be known for, right? You want to be known for the legacy that you've left behind, which is always, always articulated at funerals based on the currency of relationship that you've had in your life. I think if leaders could could do that, they could recognize in the moment, that's the key, right? Because in the moment when the bullets are flying, the cortisol is high, the stress is up, our default setting is to go directive. Our default setting is to go transactional when we have to be able to take a deep breath. And if you can think of that leader you might have had along the journey that never seemed to be, that just never had their feathers ruffled, no matter how much you know what was hitting the fan, they just always seemed calm. And I had one like that. And one time I even asked him, I said, man, aren't you concerned about this? This could blow up the whole you know, business unit and this particular strategy. And, and he just looked at me and he said, I'm still going to go home to my wife and kids. I'm still going to kiss my wife. I'm going to hug my kids. I'm going to pet my dog. And tomorrow will be another day. And this will pass. And we'll think about it. And we'll figure it out. And we'll solve it as calmly as possible. And I remember, remember leaving that meeting thinking, how does he do that? Now I know, years later, he had figured out self-reflectively that his identity wasn't wrapped up in who he was as a manager. He was a people developer, and that's what I think we want to do. So, so as we move into a couple of other topics around this, we've talked about this idea of understanding your why. And our clients know that have worked with us a lot, that you got to have a my why story to share with the customer. You should have a leader why story if you're a leader inside your organization to share with your team and with the company. It really comes down to one giant word that's a really difficult word for us to put our, our our arms around when you quantify it and it's the word trust so give me give me a little bit of your insight on what are the different types of trust and how does a leader use the different types of trust um, not only for themselves as a leader but more importantly for how to advance their team so trust is trust is one of those words that can be can be dangerous at times because people will say, yeah, well, I have a trusting relationship with my employees. And then to your point, Jeff, it's like, well, what does trust really mean? And one of the things that we coach people on daily is that when you're trying to build a high quality relationship, and if we think about these terms that we've been throwing around for the past 30 minutes, is that if I'm a manager and I have an employee and inside between those two terms is this, is this concept of coaching. And then you drop down a level below that and you say, I'm trying to drive the highest quality relationship I can. What's anchored in all of that is trust. And trust is one of those words that when it's anchored in and around that, no matter what the circumstances are, that that person trusts that you have their best interest at heart, then it's going to allow you to get through the ups in business and the downs in business. 
But when it's only surface level trust, it's similar to what we talk about a lot about having a relationship with someone. Do you have a relationship with someone that's surface level? Or do you have a relationship with someone that's at that deep level? So when you, you know, because you can feel trust. And one of the things I love about words like trust and empathy is that, and you said, alluded to this earlier, those are terms in the business world that sometimes people refer to them as, well, you know what? If I really have that kind of trusting relationship with someone, I'm going to be perceived as a weaker leader, or I'm going to be perceived as the people person rather than the process person or the profit person or the productivity. Pick your P word, but you're not going to be people focused. And people, for some reason in our society and in our business culture, view that as weak. I'm going to contend in the, in the literature and the research shows this. When you talk words like hope, compassion, vision, relational energy, trust, environment, those things are all critical if you care, again, about designing and delivering a high-quality relationship so that your team knows. Because guess what? At some point, you're going to leave. You're going to leave that team. And trust is when trust is built, they know that, that, that you leave that team better than it was before you ever got there. And the only way you can develop trust, and we know this in our personal relationships as well as our professional relationships, is that, again, it goes back to the fact that you have to care about people at a deep level, and they've got to know it. And if you've got a concern that that's going to make you weak, then you're going to struggle as being a leader that has the potential to do great things for you and your team. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how it really still goes back to self-preservation orientation when it comes to trust. Because biologically, as as human beings, with this self-preservation we've referred to earlier, not until I believe that I can trust you personally do I care that you can help me in some other way, professionally or otherwise. And 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 I always filter all of my relationships and engagements through the lens of risk. And if I feel like you're on your agenda, then my subconscious brain perceives that as risk to me in my agenda, right? No matter what it is, by the way, this is personal as well as professional. And the idea of trust is multi-layered, right? There's personal trust, there's professional trust, but that idea that I see you as safe is critical. And I know, again, it sounds like a soft word. Well, you see us safe. What are you talking about? If I feel like you're the type of manager slash, I won't even use the word leader, but the type of manager that would do whatever it took to win, even at the expense of me and my development and the goals and and aspirations I have, I will never fully trust you. And and I I might walk the journey with you because I have no other options. But to your point, the minute I have another option, what happens? I'm jumping off that bus and I'm jumping on the new bus. So that idea of trust is really comes down for us as leaders to create that environment of safety. And you can define that how you like, but to me, that environment of safety as a leader really revolves around people feeling like when they come to you and they're around you, they learn from you, that you believe in them, and that you, again, have their best interest at heart, right? And, and that I start to feel safe. And here's the thing. When I start to feel safe around you, my cortisol levels go down, my stress levels go down, my oxytocin levels go up, and that actually makes me more creative. And when I'm more creative, I can flourish. And when I can flourish, we all win faster, right? So it's, it's, it's amazing. It's not rocket science, as we say around here, right? It's neuroscience. And leadership is also neuroscience when you understand 
all of these elements and aspects of leadership. And, and Jeff, I, I just want to, to say to that, and if anybody's listening out there, if, if you say, well, I don't know that I've read anything about what you're talking about, um, I'll challenge anyone that's listening to us. They go back to the January 2019, this year, this calendar year, and do yourself a favor, favor and read the special issue on the brain science behind business. And then fast forward two months later in March and read the articles about why feedback fails. And what you're, what you're going to find inside there is exactly what you're alluding to, Jeff, is that there is 20 plus years of research that has been done in understanding what it takes in, in, and how our neurochemistry actually drives the fact that we are all in the business of driving behavioral change. And the way that you do that is through the relationships that you build because it has an, an impact on our neurochemistry that allows us to be more, and you said the word, more open to change. And if you're not, and you do it in reverse, you will shut people down because they will feel the stress levels that they're not able to perform. And you know what happens? Then they stop taking risks. And then they stop believing in what they're doing. And then all of a sudden you got a team of people walking around and then you end up with what Gallup puts out every year in everybody's face that 70% of employees in this country are either disengaged or actively disengaged. And that, Jeff, is if that's even half correct, that's an epidemic. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, I remember when that issue came out, a client sent it to us and said, I think Harvard Business Review just released an article, a special edition on your business model at Brain Trust. And so it just really validated a lot of the, the research and a lot of the work that we've been doing with clients. So, well, in, in our limited time left, I think I wanted, what I want to do is, is shift gears and talk a little bit about this equation that you and I talk a lot about with clients um, around cognitive intelligence, right? So we call that CLI, Cognitive Leadership Intelligence, um, but also with emotional leadership intelligence and then social leadership intelligence. And I know you've had the privilege of working a lot with Richard Boyatzis, who wrote Primal Leadership. He has a new book coming out this fall on change, and he's just been a guru. He and Daniel Goleman have done a lot of work in the emotional intelligence space, and we've taken a lot of that work and applied it in to a more specific formula for leadership. So can you just give us uh, you know, maybe your 30-second to a minute definition of that formula, the CLI, Cognitive Leadership Intelligence, plus ELI, Emotional Leadership Intelligence, plus SLI, Social Leadership Intelligence, equals what? And then give us that. Yeah, so let me tell you what it equals first. It equals actually having the highest level of coaching impact that you possibly can have. And it all starts, it all goes back to where we started. That if you believe that the term coach makes a difference in business, then there's a cocktail of things that are critical. And so oftentimes we'll be coaching people and they'll say, well, you know what, Dan and Jeff, I get the cognitive intelligence piece, the CLI. I get the cognitive leadership impact. I get that. They get, they get the brain side of things. They get the, the cognitive side. I'm a smart person. And guess what? Most leaders, if, they aren't, if they're in the spots that they're in, I'm going to go ahead and give you the free pass that you're smart. You can determine for yourself whether you're smart on an IQ test, but I'm going to give you the pass that you're smart. That's only a third of the equation. The second part of the equation is, is that emotional, what you called kind of emotional impact that, or emotional intelligence or emotional capabilities that are so critical in relationships. And everything we've been talking about for this entire podcast is in and around relationships. By the way, another big step back, and, and, and there is literature on this that supports it. The best leaders are emotionally intelligent. 
granted that they're also smart. And then all of a sudden, when you get the social side of it, it is that transference that we were talking about, about how important it is in that social awareness of what the impact is to others. So your cognitive intelligence is your smarts. Your emotional intelligence is your ability to have some self-awareness about your strengths and about your weaknesses so it can put you in the strongest position to coach. And the social piece of it is how you transfer that to other people. When you can combine that triad of things, you're going to have an optimal level of coaching impact. When you only do one or two or three, you don't have the full equation. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So I think just to, just to re- recap what you just said there, because this is what I want you to take away from out there today from a self-evaluation standpoint. If you gave your score, yourself a score on, on one to 10 of your cognitive leadership impact, like how smart are you? It's not just IQ, it's your experience, your knowledge of the business, your strategic thinking, your critical thinking skills, your problem solving. Those are all part of cognitive. So you can give yourself a score there. Maybe you could ask a couple of your leader peers how they might score you. Then I want you to give yourself a score on your emotional intelligence. Now, this is much better actually having someone else score you on this one, because if you give yourself a high score on your self-awareness of your strengths and weaknesses, then ask a couple of peers and then they look at you and say, Dude, that's crazy. You have no self-awareness. That might be a a good uh, inclination that there's an issue there because that will disconnect you from your ability to recognize in yourself those things we talked about earlier that you're trying to establish in order to generate a positive environment for your for your for your teams to be willing to be coached by you. And then lastly, when I have self-awareness, you're saying, and I recognize my strengths and weaknesses, that's good. But the action of that is how I recognize socially I act in situations with my cognitive intelligence and my empathy and my emotional awareness of situations to my team, to my people, exactly. whomever, right? So if I can evaluate those things, and I think what, I, what we'll do on this, because this, this is such a meaty topic, because what we're about to bridge into now is actually the coaching environment is how do we as a leader who's a good coach, who's a great coach, because we said earlier you can't be a great leader without being a good coach, how do we take all of this information and create an environment of effective coaching so that people actually want to be coached by you as a leader? And I think what we'll do is we'll take that topic into a second podcast because there's so much information there that I don't want to shortchange it for the interest of time. So I just want to thank uh, Dr. Dan here as he's come on and given his perspective. Um, again, I've seen him in action. He's an amazing leader and a great coach. And for those of you who are out there listening today, hopefully some of this information was helpful for you uh, from a self-evaluation of, of your leadership style and approach. And uh, continue to listen to this. Hit the website, braintrust101.com, where we always have resources out there for you to continue to grow in whatever sphere in life you're in right now, because leaders aren't just in the business. Leaders run our communities. Leaders run our kids' sports teams. Leaders run our kids' schools. Leaders run our families. So these things apply across the board. So again, thank you, Dan, for, for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time on the Driving Change Podcast. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.